Let us pray together. Father, we ask by your Spirit that you would open our hearts, that which we are incapable of doing on our own, to have soft, humble, teachable hearts. We implore your Spirit to do for us and in us, that we may receive, like manna from heaven, the food of your word, and that you would transform us according to your will and your ways in our lives, whatever it is you're doing in us both individually and corporately. I thank you for the promise of your word that says it does not return to you without accomplishing your purpose. So whatever that purpose, and maybe whatever those purposes are amongst us, this morning I trust you will do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are able, I'll ask you to stand one more time for the reading of God's Word upon which our teaching is based this morning, and it comes from the prophet Isaiah. So we've been looking at Romans so much, which is probably one of the richest, deepest theological books in the New Testament. I thought for Advent season, we would let one of the richest, deepest, most theological books of the Old Testament be our guide as we work our way through this season of the calendar. And this morning, we are looking at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes from many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning begins the time of the Christian year in the liturgical calendar known as Advent, which is also the beginning of the Christian year. So in a sense, wish your neighbor Happy New Year's. Because this is the first Sunday in the Christian year. Did y'all stay up to midnight last night? I couldn't. I even had a football game on that I liked, and I couldn't make it to the end. So I was in bed long before midnight. But today is the first day of the church's New Year. One PCA pastor put it this way. He says, the Christian year or the liturgical calendar is a communal pattern that forms us year after year to be a people of the story of our faith. Human beings are creatures profoundly and fundamentally shaped by stories. Our conviction is that each of our lives will always be following someone's calendar and someone's story. It is just a question of whose story it is and what kind of narrative It is telling. So in other words, your identity is shaped by a story. It's a matter of what story are you listening to. Now, you know, we do this in our country. We do this very naturally. For example, America has a basic calendar it follows. We have Memorial Day. 
which you know is the first day of summer, right? Then you have 4th of July, which is the middle of summer, fireworks, all that kind of stuff. You have Labor Day, which, at least for me growing up, Labor Day was, okay, somehow, and I don't really, I have to talk to my mother about this. She instilled it in me, me who has probably zero fashion sense, you don't wear white after Labor Day. Now, I was told this morning, I have to correct this from 8.30 to 11 o'clock, sir. This is one of the reasons I'm thankful for two services. Winter white apparently is okay after Labor Day. Now, you're going to have to tell me and show me what winter white looks like. Okay, but, you know, this is part of our narrative, part of our story. And then it goes, what holiday did we just have a couple days ago? Anybody still full from Thanksgiving? I mean, you have turkey, and then you have more turkey, and then what do you have next? Turkey sandwiches, throw in a little turkey soup. Oh, and by the way, it's Advent, which leads us into Christmas. So in one sense, the Christian year is no different other than it is telling a different story. It is telling the story of our Christian faith, the story of the gospel. And as such, it is the story that is to shape our identities, to form us and shape who we are. Think about it. We find in the Christian year, it begins with Advent, which tells the story of waiting, ex expectation, anticipation. Thus, what's the sermon title? Living in hope. What do we anticipate? The birth of Jesus Christ. And from our perspective, where Advent is the whole of life, we live what? In between the times where we look back on his first coming and we look forward to his second coming, when he will come to judge the living and dead and make everything right, where there will be no more mourning or crying or death or pain, for the old order of things will be removed. Jesus himself is making all things new. So we wait expectantly and hopefully for that. Of course, you have the account of Jesus' incarnation and birth at Christmas time. Epiphany recounts the story of Jesus' early life and ministry up to age 12 where he goes into the temple. Remember that whole scene in Luke's gospel of Jesus' parents searching him out and looking for him? We then have Lent through Easter and Pentecost, which focuses on the cross and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, followed by practical discipleship of how to follow Jesus in his words and in his ways in the practical Christian life. So this morning is the beginning of the Christian year, the first Sunday of Advent. We light the Advent candle, for instance. It has its various themes of hope and peace and joy and love. Advent is also a time where we are brutally honest about the confusion and the darkness that we still live in as we pray, Thy kingdom come, because it's not fully here yet, and we wait for the second coming of Jesus and ushering in, in consummated glory of his wondrous kingdom. One author put it this way, and I just love how it's put, when it's written, Advent is not for the faint of heart. It is not for sissies. To grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between, because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ, incognito in the stable in Bethlehem, and his second coming, in glory to judge the living and the dead. In this time between, our lives are hidden with Christ and God, 
As it says in Colossians 3, 3 and 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then, notice that's in the future, then we will also appear with him in glory. And so Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and the not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. It is in that Advent tension that the church lives its life. Listen to how another writer put it. When it's written, Advent bids us first to pause, to slow down, to look with complete honesty at the darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. Our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief, and it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness and impatience and selfishness. Advent is different than Christmas. And the question is, how do we then live our life as individuals and in a church, how do we lean into this cosmic ache? Rather than living in just a frenetic pace with the stress and anxiety of unlimited obligation, I need to get the next thing done. What happens when we slow down and actually look with raw honesty at the state of the world and maybe the state of our souls? As individuals and a church, how do we live in this dynamic tension? reflecting the Advent reality of now and not yet. The answer is to live in hope. The answer is to cultivate the spiritual discipline of hope. And so to learn and grow in the discipline of cultivating hope, our guide this Advent season is going to be the prophet Isaiah, who Ray Ortland says is widely considered to be the deepest, richest, and most theologically significant book of the Old Testament. Ortland writes, Isaiah helps us set our hearts on God. The key is not just what we believe, but what we value. In other words, where your treasure is. That is what you will value and your heart will be the most. He writes, prophetic eyes look beyond the world as it is now to a new world in the future. And we can live now in the power of that future. He continues saying, Isaiah looks from the beauty of the beginning through the wreckage of history all the way forward to the glory of the consummation. And what does he foresee? Isaiah sees the worship of God enthused over while all the religions of man are humbled into nothing. So friends, how do we practically learn to live in hope? How do we cultivate this? We're here in Isaiah chapter 2, this poem which was well known, or at least familiar, at least familiar to one other prophet, you know, Micah basically has the same poem in Micah chapter 4. He's going to look out over the horizon of an idealized city of God, an idealized Jerusalem, God's home, God's dwelling place, 
and looking out over this idealized prophetic future, Isaiah teaches us two things. Isaiah will teach us that God's presence is the source of ultimate reality and that God's presence will bring a new world. And those two things, ultimate reality and a new world, bring you a living hope. Look with me at verse 1. God's presence is your ultimate reality. And the poem begins, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The commentator, Alec Motier, in his commentary on Isaiah, says the theme here is a vision of Jerusalem as the center of world pilgrimage, revelation, and peace. It expresses poetically the Abrahamic status of Israel as the elect of God, chosen as the means of universal blessing. Isaiah here is prophesying the hope and purpose of Israel's and particularly Jerusalem's election as the city of God in fulfillment of the promise that God pledged himself to, covenanted himself to, back in Genesis chapter 12 when he said to Abraham, it is in you, in your family, that all the families of the earth will find their blessing. All the families of the earth will find salvation and redemption and restoration. In fact, that's why the Old Testament scholar William Dumbrell sees this interest in Jerusalem and the fate of Jerusalem as the unifying theme of the entire book of Isaiah. He writes, if the book is read as a unit, there's an overmastering theme which may be said effectively to unite the whole. He says, this is the theme of Yahweh's interest in and devotion to the city of Jerusalem. Now look at what Isaiah sees as he foresees the future. And you need to notice something And here's something about how we have to read prophecy. Have you ever noticed prophecy can be sometimes a little difficult to read? From our perspective, we're kind of like, what does it look like that he's foretelling the future and it comes true? Well, the best I've read is some commentator put it this way. He says, you have to picture Isaiah or any of the prophets looking out over a mountain. And they see the mountain as kind of the fulfillment of the prophecy. And so you look at great prophecies like, by his stripes you will be healed. And if you look at this just kind of in a fashion of prophecy and one-time fulfillment, actually that's one of the things that leads us sometimes into error. Because isn't the natural question, well, wait a second, if by his stripes you have been healed and I'm not healed yet, what is going on? Well, this has to do with kind of that thing called prophetic perspective. And that is that the prophet looks out at the future, but from our perspective, it's a mountain range. So that you have an ushering in, what we'd call an inauguration of the initial fulfillment in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But beyond that is a second mountain that we live in the valley in between of, that is the return of Christ where glory will be consummated in full and the kingdom will be completed in its fullness. So when we read prophecy, you have to recognize you always have, that's why you have this tension between the already inaugurated and the not yet completed. 
I still will always love Francis Schaeffer's way of putting it above all else when he says, you get the appetizer, a slice of the pie, but boy, is there a whole big smorgasbord yet to come. I love the way he puts it because it does not deny the reality that when Jesus came, something really happened in history. See, if we look at it as it's all not yet, well, what was the point of Jesus coming? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it's near, it's happening. But it's certainly, if you don't keep the tension of the not yet, how in the world does that make sense of Advent? And the confusion and the darkness and the violence and the suffering and the warfare and the tension that is real and that we still feel. So now taking that in play, look at what Isaiah sees. He says in this, in the latter days that hasn't already not yet, in these last days, in the final days, that has an already and not yet component to it. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, the most prominent the most supreme of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And look at this, all the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples, so nationalism will be transcended. This is a multicultural, multi-ethnic picture of worship of the one true God. They will come and they will say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Now, it's essential that we understand the imagery that Isaiah is using here of the mountain and the house of the Lord, this mountain that will be established as the prominent one, some undated point in the future. It'll be the prominent mountain of all mountains. We need to see that that imagery of the mountain of the Lord symbolize a sacred, holy place, disclosing the nature of God, usually indicating a profound encounter with the transcendent. Work your way through the Old Testament scriptures and Ezekiel places the Garden of Eden up on a mountain. Abraham is tested by God and shows his willingness to trust God by sacrificing his son Isaac on a mountain called Mount Moriah. God appears to Moses from the burning bush on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God in Exodus chapter 3. Later in Exodus, Moses ascends in a cloud to meet God and receive the law on Mount Sinai. And finally, here there is Zion, on which the temple stood in Jerusalem as the ultimate mountain. Now, it's interesting if Zion is to be the ultimate mountain, it's interesting to notice the contrast between Zion and Sinai. Very instructive for our purposes. Remember Mount Sinai? Remember the picture of that when Moses ascends into that and what that mountain communicated back in Exodus 19 and 20? That was not a very welcoming mountain, wasn't it? It was kind of like, stay clear. Don't come near. Don't touch this. You had thunder and you had smoke and you had loud blasts. Not exactly a warm picture of intimacy and communion. Kind of saying, harsh, unwelcoming, threatening place. Whereas, look at this. Zion is more welcoming, tracking with the progress of redemption. And now a comforting image of the presence of God. Zion, though physically unimposing, unimpressive, becomes the chief of the mountains. Why? Because it is where the temple sits and the temple is housed. And the temple situated on this mountain symbolizes what? The dwelling place of God. God's home where communion and intimacy can be had. The meeting place 
of heaven and earth, the home of God. All of this compels us. What is the application? It compels us and draws us to worship. Because the text says, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. And isn't it interesting, and it says, all the nations shall flow to it. Motir mentions of this verse that all nations flowing to the mountain. He says, the incongruity of a stream flowing upwards to the earth's highest point is intentional in this text because it is showing forth a supernatural magnetism that is at work. And it is interesting to follow the trajectory here of what Isaiah is depicting because what is he doing? He is seeing the nations go to the temple. It's kind of like the movement that we could call centripetal, which means towards the center. Whereas the New Testament depicts a different movement. See, I want you to think about this in the way of application. You know, the psalmist says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may come into his holy presence? Only those whose hands are clean, whose heart is blameless, and who's pure before the Lord. So if God's presence is the source of reality and the psalmist is leading the people in worship and who may ascend the source of ultimate reality and all of a sudden you go, well, let's see, my hands aren't clean, my heart's not pure, I'm not blameless. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come into God's presence? We're all disqualified. How is it even possible for the peoples to ascend to God, this ultimate reality? Well, what do we learn when we come to the New Testament? The New Testament depicts God's presence. Think about this. Ultimate reality as coming down. God in the person of Jesus Christ becomes human. Takes on flesh. Becomes incarnate. As Tim Keller likes to say, the ideal becomes real. Jesus leaves the mountain and enters the human condition. The movement here is centrifugal, from the center or the inside out. You also see this depicted if you look at in the Gospels and Acts, the best example being Luke's two volume of Luke and Acts, which, by the way, are meant to be read together. Too often we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke and Acts are Luke's two volumes of a single work. But where's Luke's movement? Toward Jerusalem toward the mountain of God, where Jesus, God in the flesh, will die for our sins to overcome evil. And only then, in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is poured upon the people of God, and the people of God become the temple of God, the movement is outward. What does Acts chapter 1, verse 8 say? You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. See, the book of Acts takes the movement outward from the church as the new temple of God. The mountain, if you will, goes to the ends of the earth. And what does this mountain coming down to us in the person and the work of Jesus produce? It produces a whole new world. God's presence will bring a new world. Look at the rest of the text, verses, the second part of verse 3 to verse 5. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Don't you love this? The word of God comes out of Zion from Jerusalem. The source of all reality. Now I want you to notice how the text goes. The text says, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then look at what comes immediately next. It says, he, referring to a person. He will judge. He will rule. The word comes out of Zion and he will judge. The he being Jesus Christ. The word made flesh. Truth. But not any old truth. Living embodied truth coming from God's dwelling place, God's home, from ultimate reality. The source of all reality is the word of God and truth is ultimately a person, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The word literally comes out of Zion and will produce a whole new world. A world of proper judgment. He will judge between the nations A world of biblical justice, proper justice, where he will make right. He will end the cessation and the hostilities. I love again how Motir puts it when he says, For Isaiah, the abolition of armaments follows a divine reordering of the world consequent upon the transcending of nationalism by the recognition of the one true God. The worship of the one true God will lead to a whole new world. The means of war, he says beat their swords, the practice of war, lift up your sword, and the mentality of war, learn war, all alike will disappear. The choice of agricultural implements, plowshares, pruning hooks, is symbolic of the return to Eden. People right with God again. The curse removed. The end of the serpent's dominion. An ideal environment. How do we live in light of this? Verse 5 tells us, O house of Jacob, in other words, people of God, children of God, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now we have to recognize that this means a couple of things for us. First of all, again, remember our prophetic perspective. We live in between times, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, which means what? Swords have not yet been beaten into plowshares. There's still violence and war and hatred and ideologies and division and strife and tensions. We can't produce this kind of transformation. But as we live Advent, it can be our expectation, our vision, our ambition, our goal. We can live in light of the Lord as we do what? As one person put it, watch and pray. He writes, this is the theme of Advent. Advent is not preparation or prelude for just the babe born on Christian morn. No, Advent is a watchful expectation for the king to dispel darkness, to return and dispel darkness and usher in his kingdom of light. Friends, what can we do? Live in the light of the Lord. We can watch and pray. 
We can be a witness. We can cultivate this living hope. We can worship. We can come and lift up the reality of the one true God. And we can recognize this is the world he will remake. He is going to make a whole new world. And we can model those values. We can live peacefully. We can live as peacemakers. We don't have to model violence and hostility and tension and warfare. We can recognize this is thy kingdom come. Though it hasn't come yet, this is what the people of God represent and are ambassadors of. This is what Advent is all about. Living in the darkness as sojourners and exiles, knowing just like every night when we go to bed and it's dark, what are we looking for? The dawning of a new day. The light coming. And we're waiting longingly, hopefully, urgently, expectantly, looking for the return of Jesus. Where light completely glorious, will dispel all the darkness. Will you be watching and praying? Will you be looking for thy kingdom come? Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the living hope. And Lord, we do now ask, as we come to the table, we thank you for this opportunity to commune with you, to feed off of you, manna from heaven that you give us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.